all her smiling train, having once more taken her abode in the land of freedom and my country, seeming no longer to require my feeble services in the tented field, I fondly anticipate the pleasure of soon visiting my connections and friends, participating with them in all the enjoyments of a social life. The time has arrived when I can again indulge in seeking a provision for myself. The army will probably in a month or two be disposed of when I shall be at liberty to look out for a stand. And at my age, you know it will be necessary to do it immediately. But the great question is, where? I have in contemplation to visit the Western country as far as the Indiana or Illinois territories and satisfy myself of the prospects there before I return to Maine. The commanding officer at Kingston has not yet read official information from his own government on the peace and consequently would not admit our flag officers into the town when they carried the treaty. In strictness of military etiquette, this was correct, though perhaps the occasion might have justified a little more liberality. Their officers, who read the flag, treated us with extreme politeness, though they were evidently chagrined at the termination of their famous New Orleans expedition. They made but few inquiries respecting the affair, seemed sore on the subject. And the treaty coming immediately after? Mm looking like they're recognizing the last blow. Soldiers enlisted to serve during the war will be discharged, but not until they are paid. Those on this station can then return home with nearly $100 in their pockets. How do the Hartford conventionalists feel now? Hmm? At a distance, well, they look rather foolish. Yes, peace in all her smiling train. Those were the words of Captain Rufus McIntyre of the 3rd United States Artillery. And obviously feeling his oats at the end of the war. Already eyeing up big dreams out west with a hundred bucks in his pocket. Good for Rufus. Peace and all her smiling train. Peace will be our subject to discuss today. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids. If you have listened recently, the last few weeks we touched, at least peripherally, on the beginning of the war. So why not now immediately jump to its conclusion? It's nice to look at something from its opposite point of view, and we need not be chronological. I have no qualms. It's all history. You heard Captain McIntyre mention the Hartford Convention at his closing. And we will touch on this once more today, but in no great detail, saving the subject for the future. This will be official and personal reactions to the Treaty of Ghent and the year 1815. Glad tidings of great joy! We have just been politely favored with the following glorious and heart-cheering news, which we hasten to lay before our readers. Sir... I hasten to acquaint you for the information of the public of the arrival here this afternoon of His Britannic Majesty's Sloop of War favorite. 
in which has come passenger Mr. Carroll, American messenger, having in his possession a treaty of peace between this country and Great Britain, signed on the 26th of December last. Mr. Baker also is on board as agent for the British government, the same who was formerly charged des affaires here. Mr. Carroll reached town at 8 p.m. this evening. He showed to a friend of mine the packet containing the treaty and the London newspaper of the last date of December announcing the signing of the treaty. It depends, however, upon the act of the president to suspend hostilities on this side. This city is in perfect uproar of joys, shouts, illuminations, etc., etc. Jonathan Goodhue. This taken from an American broadside hung in Rhode Island, which opens like a Christmas card, by the way. The announcement simply reprints a letter from New York's John Goodhue to the editors at the Boston Gazette. Goodhue got the date wrong. The signing was Christmas Eve, not Boxing Day. And the editors at the Gazette were so excited themselves, they overlooked some spelling and printing errors. February 27, Cornwall. Yesterday morning, I received letters from Montreal stating that the Treaty of Peace had been ratified and the guns at that place had in consequence been fired at a rejoicing at the event. General Brisbane received the express on the lines and it would reach Quebec the night of the 25th. All stores are stopped at Montreal and nothing but provisions will now be sent up. Commissariat Thomas Rideout, writing from Cornwall in Ontario at the end of February. And from London. A new song and chorus on peace with America and on plenty. Since peace with American brothers is made and both may rejoice in the comforts of trade, the bulldogs on either side go to sleep and fathers and mothers and wives cease to weep. Those brothers that foes were as friends we will greet. Be hearty in kindness to them when we meet. We'll hie to the vintner, deal bumpers amain, then huzzah no! and huzzah no! and deal bumpers amain. For old England at peace shall give plenty again. Then let peace be ratified and be long-lived. Twill matter not either side who it contrived. The spit shall go round as of old, as of old, and stories of plenty and trading be told. The barn and the cellar and storeroom will fill, for Britons like drinking and feasting still still. Then hie to the vintner, quaff bumpers amain, for plenty the glory of England shall reign. And huzzah, no, and huzzah, then no. the toast proudly tell, tis the regent, hip, 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 no. that manages so well. I love this little hastily written chorus. If you find it too fatty, with its mulled wine and mutton or overly ripe in its joy, I need remind you that news of the peace would have reached Londoners during the octave of Christmas, 1814. And let not our imaginations be diminished of a 19th century English Christmas. If you are hearing this in the US or Canada, 
I recommend Washington Irving's essays collectively titled The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon for a Yankee's well-observed Old English Christmas. It is rife with lovely, lovely rhyme. Allow us to get a little detailed perspective on the history involved here. Delegates from both the United States and Great Britain began meeting in August 1814. Both sides were anxiously seeking peace at this time. The U.S. was facing bankruptcy and divisive opposition to the war at home. Britain, war-weary and locked in North American stalemate. The delegation from America was well-rounded and deep. John Quincy Adams, son of a president and ambassador to Russia, Albert Gallatin, the longtime Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Clay, a thundering warhawk, James Bayard, a Federalist, and Jonathan Russell, perhaps on the rise. The British have been described as a kind of a B-team of dueling seconds as formal cabinet members backed off the proceedings. Lord Gambier was new to the peerage, and lawyer William Adams represented the Admiralty, and Henry Goulburn, undersecretary, to the colonies. Negotiations began on August 8th, set in Ghent, now Belgium, and would continue until the signing on December 24th, 1814. Noticeably absent were any representatives of North American Indians, a third and crucial party in this conflict, demonstrating perhaps the prejudice of the era, but they would have a small voice in the opening from their allies in the British contingent. Late summer to Christmas, four and a half months, what could they have possibly discussed for that long? Well, both sides arrived with demands that were not going to be met, and entirely new arrangements would have to be drawn up and argued over. The states, of course, wanted immunity from search and seizure at sea, and an end to impressment, both points of which they admitted, with the passage of time, were no longer issues. And the Crown wanted to establish a large buffer state, a secure native homeland between the United States and British North America. But they backed down when they realized the U.S. would never concede to any grants towards Indians. Hardcore negotiation ensued as one side would up the ante in response to the other and to ongoing events across the Atlantic. Meanwhile, fighting on the ground and on the waves continued Late 1814 would see some of the most intrepid and historic battles of the war. The British landing in Maryland and its actions against the American capital, the campaign in the Chesapeake, the Battle of Plattsburgh, and the planned invasion of New York. So what was decided? In 3,000 words and 11 articles, status quo antebellum was established, meaning everything would return to the way it was prior to the outset of hostilities all territorial possessions and property taken would be returned. The wording gave provisos that boundary disputes between Canada and the United States be referred to special commissions of arbitration. Both sides agreed to work towards ending the Atlantic slave trade. Impressment, the major cause of the war, yielded to silence. The treaty negotiators stipulated that both Parliament and the American Congress must accept the document as is in the interest of a speedy peace. Writer Robert Henderson claims the now liberated delegates came together and enjoyed a Christmas dinner the following day of beef and plum pudding brought over the channel for the occasion. 
the copies made their way to Britain first, where the Prince Regent made it policy in the waning hours of 1814. It then crossed the Atlantic, as we have heard, aboard the favorite in the arms of Mr. Carroll, one of the secretaries to the American commissioners, arriving in New York on Saturday evening, February 11th. Yet all through January, the boom of cannon and musket fire would still be heard along the lakes and seaboard. The notable Battle of New Orleans and attacks on Mobile Bay. The U.S. Senate ratified the treaty unanimously in mid-February, and President James Madison exchanged his copy with the British diplomat the following day. When the news of peace arrived, we were crazy with joy. Miss Sally Coles, a cousin to Mrs. Madison, came to the head of the stairs crying out, peace, peace, and told John Freeman, the butler, to serve out wine liberally to the servants and others. I played the President's March on the violin. John Suze and some others were drunk for two days, and such another joyful time was never seen in Washington. Mr. Madison and all his cabinet were as pleased as any, but did not show their joy in this manner. President's March, performed here as kind of a funny little contrasance or country dance, not out of step with the times, if sounding a bit provincial. The march, composed in 1789 for the Washington administration, it received a set of lyrics about a decade later, so it's sometimes called Hail Columbia after those. This tune would have been heard a lot during the War of 1812, as it was played at army bases during the beating of the retreat, or the lowering of the colors at evening. And Paul Jennings, longtime servant to President Madison. I use air quotes around servant, as we all know little Jimmy Madison adhered to the peculiar institution. But with the long and drawn out negotiating process for peace, and the lengthy Atlantic passage, military leaders had their doubts about peace being achieved in 1815. Plans had to be made for the spring fighting season. Secretary James Monroe was still committed to the war effort in February, as he wrote from the War Department to Generals Brown and Dearborn just one day 
before the news arrived in New York. February 10, 1815. The great object to be obtained is to carry the war into Canada and to break the British power there to the utmost practicable extent. After making due allowances for the numbers of British forces, for the difficulties attending the passage of the St. Lawrence, and the immature state of our preparations, I think we may enter Canada and gain a decided superiority there next campaign. To what extent it may be carried is uncertain, as it will depend on many circumstances of which we can form no estimate at this time. It seems probable, however, that if we secure the landing of a great force and beat them completely in the field at every front between Kingston and Montreal, or wherever we may meet them, that we shall be able to drive them into Quebec. The formation and collection of this force is the first thing to be attended to on our front. On that, our success must altogether depend. Royal Navy Admiral Cochrane received the news on February 15th, having just leveled Fort Boyer in Mobile Bay. The principal motive in taking Mobile was to secure the Indians in the possession of their country and free them from the control of the United States. But seeking more clarity on the situation, I will take a position right up near to Washington, so as to have the earliest information as to peace or to war. My future movements will be relegated by circumstance. I might be called upon by the northern states to assist them in separating from the Union. Though not named, here again is a nod to the Hartford Convention. New England was decidedly the most opposed to the war, and 26 delegates met in closed-door sessions to decide what to do about it. With the words of Admiral Cochrane, Britain seems poised to help wound the United States further in aiding them in what the British thought might be a move to separate or secede had the Senate not ratified in due haste. We know now that secession was not a point in their final report, and their words were drowned out by the joy of Jackson's victory down south. But I find it interesting Cochrane was so keyed in on this potential, and so thorough on the smallest angles of advantage in the larger war. But as we've collectively heard, the public reactions all over seemed joyful. And why not? Peace is a good thing. The general populace did not seem particularly concerned as to the details of the treaty. People even then having attention spans relegated to the headlines when such happy news arrives. And for the Americans, news of peace came right on the heels of the victory at New Orleans, giving a renewed pride in themselves. But not all the fighting men were as starry-eyed as Captain McIntyre from our extreme opening. Some soldiers in the field had a few reactions we might not expect. We never had occasion to make any more false alarms after that, nor had we any real ones. For a few days afterwards came the news of peace, 
It came while I was at the station. But for this, I should have stayed there until the ice became dangerous for crossing. This was in February, 1815. I can't recall to mind the day of the month when we broke up our camp for good. We left all we had with us with that old man that owned the house in which we had our quarters for about two weeks and marched back on the ice to our camp at or near the town of Erie, Pennsylvania. When we arrived at camp, it looked as though some great calamity had befallen us. All looked low-spirited and downhearted. No joyous greeting, no grand parade, no firing of national salutes, no rejoicing for the consummation of that peace which our country so much desired and hoped for at the time. We were selfish and could not see with our contracted vision that wants of our country. We reason in this way. We had made the profession of arms our study and practice for the last three years and looked forward with the hope that the coming campaign would be an active one and that there would be abundant opportunities for us who had been kept at hard inferior service to distinguish ourselves and gain that promotion which is the great stimulus for the subaltern to continue in the service. We feared that we would be turned out on the world poor and without friends, without money, and almost unfitted for labor and some too proud for labor, a false pride entertained by too many. It placed a great many officers out of employment for the present. John Cochran. The expense of war surprises John Bull, and he only grumbles. Were he to inquire into the cause, it is hoped he would be shy of so expensive an amusement. After all, he does not get his fun for his money. Well, things got on pretty much the same till we had nearly completed our business. No labor had been spared in perfecting our work. Bridges had been thrown across streams in the depth of winter. When officers and men had to stand for hours in the middle of ice-cold water. Ravines had to be bridged when the logs had to be dragged out of swamps through four feet of snow. The month of March was far advanced when we promised ourselves a pleasant summer in the comfortable quarters that we meant to build for ourselves at Penetanguishene. When all our anticipations were set aside by the arrival of the appalling intelligence that peace had been concluded between His Majesty and the United States. This showed us half pay staring us in the face. Half pay. However, soldiers have nothing to do but obey. And we were withdrawn, and all that expenditure incurred went for nothing. We were marched to Toronto. After remaining there two months at Sorrel, embarked in June 1815 to go to Waterloo. Dr. William Dunlap. 88th Regiment of Foot. As His Majesty's troops pulled out to go stand their ground at Waterloo, the American army was reduced in size by about 75%, returning to pre-war numbers of around 10,000 men. Some 1,800 officers lost their positions. 
Here at Fort Meigs, the troops marched out in May of 1815, leaving their frontier home of two years to its own fate in the deep woods and the swamp. As you recall from the letter of Commissariat Rideout earlier, news of peace reached Quebec on the 25th of February. A few days later, general orders were issued stating the Canadian militia would be officially disbanded on the 24th of March. And Lady Matilda Rideout, daughter of the aforread Thomas Rideout, had such painted words to say on the militia, I feel compelled to simply read straight from her book of the late 19th century. The war-torn citizen soldiers returned to their homes, for which they had fought so well. Yet their ranks were sadly thinned. Under the green leaves of shot-riven woods, beneath the grasses of many a quiet hillside, and in the village churchyards all along that historic frontier, were left behind those who had laid down their lives for Canada. And in parting, I will leave you with another poem written in honor of the peace. Not bad, two poems and a tune today. And this simply titled, Peace, Peace, was published in Boston in 1815 by Nathaniel Coverley. We'll see you again, huzzah. All hail, smiling peace, come to joy, our blessed shore, where the alarms of war are sounding no more, where smiling peace hovers to give us delights, since valor and courage has gained us our rights. While we joy for our peace, let's think of the past, when the clarion of fame blew war's horrid blast, where hero met hero in valorous fight, which, alas, proved to many an endless night. Let's think of our heroes, our men of renown, the battles they've fought, the victories they've won, and praise our brave heroes of valorous deed, who deserve well of us our tribute of mead. While we think of our heroes of valorous might, who fought for our freedom and for our birthright, we'll think with delight of the victories they gained, and dwell with great joy on the power they attained. Our president, we with joy will proclaim the greatest that graces the tablet of fame, who brought this great war at length to a close, with honor to us and contempt to our foes. Then hail, smiling peace, come bless our glad shore, for the alarms of war are sounding no more. While peace and commerce at length is combined, which for our blessed country our God has designed.